this episode of the Marriott Hotel's In Focus podcast. Today's discussion will cover side hustles and turning your ambition into reality. Liz Ward is a business and career pivot expert and the founder of Slick Pivot, a boutique coaching hub for career changers, startups and entrepreneurs. A speaker within the entrepreneurial community, she's spoken at events for WeWork, Soho House and Girl Tribe Gang. She runs her signature workshop, How to Pivot Your Career, regularly across London and will be launching her first online course, Lightbulb Moment, How to Work Out What to Do Next with Your Career in Autumn 2019. Emma Gannon is a best-selling author, Sunday Times business columnist blogger, speaker and podcast host, recently named in Forbes 30 Under 30 Europe 2018 list. Emma published her first book, Control-Alt-Delete, How I Grew Up Online in 2016. Her second book, The Multi-Hyphen Method, Work Less, Create More and Design a Career That Works for You, became an instant bestseller upon publication in May 2018. Emma's podcast, Control-Alt-Delete, discusses work, social media and careers and features guests such as Lena Dunham, Elizabeth Gilbert and Ava DuVernay. It has reached over 4 million downloads to date. She's currently working with the Prince's Trust as part of their Get Hired initiative, as well as the Media Trust charity, which helps young people to develop their voices in the media. Cassandra Stavrou is the co-founder of Propercorn, the largest independent snack company in the UK. Since launching in 2011, Cassandra has worked tirelessly to create a dynamic business grounded in passion for food and creativity, with Propercorn emerging as the fastest non-tech startup in the UK. Cassandra's made mentorship an enormous part of her working life. During her five years at the helm of Propercorn, she's been profiled by the likes of Sky News, the BBC, CNBC and The Times, and was recently received the prestigious Verve Clicquot New Generation Award for her efforts in both business and mentorship. A very esteemed roster of women here. Let's start with the ambition part of the title. Cassandra, can you tell us how Propercorn developed into a fully-fledged business from its original idea? What were you doing at the time you dreamt it up? I was was working in Soho in London uh, for an ad agency. And I noticed that that kind of afternoon slump that we all have, three o'clock, where you um, you know rush to the end of the road and get a chocolate bar and feel really guilty about it, or you go and buy a rice cake and invariably buy a chocolate bar anyway. And so I thought there was a real opportunity to create a snack that was full of flavour but happened to be better for you. Um, and I just thought popcorn was so wonderful because we've all grown up eating popcorn in, in some way and everyone understands what it is. And then a bit of serendipity in that I um, I went home and I told my mum about the idea and she reminded me that the last present my dad had bought me, um, who sadly passed away when I was 16, uh, was a popcorn machine. And so, you know, call it fate or whatever you want, uh, that was the impetus I needed to pretty much quit my job the next day um, and get the wheels in motion. And you had quite an unusual process for... Uh, spraying your popcorn at first, didn't you? Yes. What, what equipment did you go to when you were trying to make your samples? Well, I mean, back in the day, this is, you know, before the kind of healthy snacking onslaught, um, the world of manufacturing in the UK tends to be this sort of um, scene of big burly men in industrial estates. And so being a young woman, i um, got lots of doors firmly shut in my face. Um, and so you have to be resourceful. And so um, I got a cement mixer because I needed some way to tumble the popcorn. And I was watching Top Gear and um, they were saying how the way that we spray paint cars um, is like the finest mist that you can get. And I thought, well, that's perfect. I'll use that to apply the oil. So I bought a car spraying kit online. Um, and so me, a car spraying kit and a cement mixer um, was how we made our first samples. Um, but it worked. 
It's a very creative solution. Thank you. Emma, what about you? What prompted you to leave British Glamour and turn your side hustles into a business? You started with blogging, but then that's taken on lots of different tentacles, hasn't it? Yeah, so I've always had side projects and I suppose the word side hustle has become a bit of a buzzword, but over the last eight or nine years, I've had a blog on the side of my job and I always thought, well, I'll just have my job and I'll earn my money and then I'll do my passion projects on the side. And I never actually thought that I could do what I love, in inverted commas, like for a career. I just thought, I don't think I can do that. I think I have to just do it on the side. So it was to my surprise, really, that people started reading it and sharing it and I was getting all sorts of opportunities and making money on the side. And it just came to the point where... You know, you you can do anything, but you can't do everything. And I actually joke now that with my side projects, I've got like a one in one out thing because I don't want to overload myself. um, But I do always want to be doing things on the side for fun. You've recently become a Sunday Times business columnist. What did you drop out in order to drop that in? So you're saying that there's not like an infinite amount of hustles you can do? No, uh, there's definitely not. I uh, With that one, I actually had a monthly column for another magazine. And so I had to kind of like switch one out, switch one in. So yeah, because I didn't want to be the poster girl for like adding more to your pile. And my whole thing is streamlining, working less. Um, you know, I really make the case in my book for productivity isn't being chained to your desk for a certain amount of hours productivity can look so many different ways and on the surface it might even look like you're being quite lazy maybe you're you know you're not working 130 hour week like marissa mayer from google or whatever sorry she's from yahoo Um, but i think that busy lifestyle culture has been sold to us as like the the I know, holy grail of Mm. of being ambitious, but actually I'm really ambitious, but I also want to be um, healthy in my choices and not burn out. Liz, what was the motivation behind the very well-named Slick Pivot? Um, Well, there were a number of pivot points, I suppose, to get to that to get to slick pivot in the, in the first point <laughs> in the first place um i started my career in advertising and marketing and worked for some big corporate companies um and every couple of years um, i was doing quite well but every couple of years i kind of found myself reaching a plateau and kind of feeling like i had more to give and i was exhausted from that role um and i and i kept changing roles trying to find more, um, where i could find my my place in the world and uh, eventually after work becoming a workaholic um, I, I burnt out in about five it was five years ago I took off and went on a big trip around the world to try and find out what I was going to do next after leaving advertising um, and I needed a rest after a year I went and started consulting with startups so using all of my business and marketing experience helping the entrepreneurs who were developing their businesses and really take their businesses to the next level and I absolutely loved working with uh, small companies and really working with those entrepreneurs and founders but what I found was that for people that are running their own business they have their own ideas and they really wanted somebody to help draw out those ideas and help make them happen and that's when I decided to go and do um, some coaching courses and a qualification in coaching to really change the conversation with the people that I was working with and then when I got pregnant I set up Slick Pivot as my own company so that I was working purely for myself and on my own terms, um, but still working with those startup founders and also with professionals who were looking to work out their next move. 
And in guiding startups, so people who are relatively new perhaps to the business world or at least to their own businesses, Mm -hmm. did you learn from them as well? Was it kind of a reciprocal learning process? Yeah. I mean, with every single person I I, I work with, I, you know, I gained some knowledge. I learned all about what having a co-founder is like. So when I'm working with pairs or even three-part teams. Is that um, harder than working with a sole founder? It's a different dynamic because it's not necessarily just working, helping them work out their strategy, but it's also the dynamics of the relationship between those people and helping them align on their own, understand their own personal values and their own personal ambitions for the business and then aligning those together, which can create tension or be beautiful. You're a co-founder, aren't you, Cassandra? Yes, um, I, w- I often liken it to um, a marriage. In, I'm, I'm not married, so actually this isn't from kind of experience, but I can imagine that all the same rules apply, that um, communication is absolutely everything, never go to sleep on a fight, you know, resolve everything kind of as quickly as you can to the kind of, you know, the, the, the point that the incident occurred. And, and just really working on kind of what's that shared vision, what's that shared goal, making sure that you're totally on the same page um, and being really clear on the different roles that you play. But, you know, um, my co-founder, Ryan, we are best friends, brothers, sisters, co-founders, and also can just drive each other absolutely nutty at the same time. But, you know, you just continually work at it. There's that sort of old saying that you should never, you know, work with your friends. But I also have a media business with one of my best friends and we always put our friendship before our working relationship because there is no working relationship if there isn't a personal relationship totally and I think you have to work at both sides just as much so we really actually weirdly have been on holiday together um, the past three Christmases um, I must actually not spend enough time together but, um, you know I think it's easier when you genuinely enjoy each other's company and trust each other but yeah there are definitely times where I'm sure we wind each other up as well I think trust and um, sharing the same work ethic yeah. is really crucial yeah um, in, a, in a co-founder relationship yeah. The idea of side hustles is often misunderstood, Emma, um, and I know that you are not a fan of the term gig economy or people Mm. thinking that the multi-hyphen method, which has culturally redefined portfolio careers for millennials, is a book about the gig economy. And I know that you're keen to emphasise what a multi-hyphenate career is not as much as what it is. What do you think the common misconceptions of a multi-hyphenate career or the multi-hyphen method are? Yeah, I think that being a multi-hyphenate isn't necessarily the same as being someone who wants to be in the gig economy. I think they are slightly different because gigging is quite insecure. It's Mm. working on behalf of maybe an app like Uber or Deliveroo or, you know, you're at the beck and call of someone else. Whereas actually my book is about how to have multiple income streams that you actually funnel yourself and are in control of yourself so lots of like micro businesses and you know contracting on behalf of yourself or on behalf of your business so I like to make sure that those two things are definitely spoken about as separate things because I'm all about like being secure and having income that is regular and empowering yourself um, and putting yourself at the heart of your decisions so yeah that's one misconception and the other one is that they think people think that when I say multi-hyphen I'm talking about multitasking and actually something that I something that I do not do you know to write a book you can't have like 17 tabs open on your computer and read through you know you have to be single-minded with your task and the way that I run my work week now is I have a day per 
job. And like I write my column on a Monday, I do my podcast on a Tuesday, I meet people and interview people on Wednesdays, Friday is my like admin day. It's like, I really lay it out because I just think the minute that you're chopping and changing between tasks, you will go mad. And it's been scientifically proven that your brain cannot handle that many changes in a day. So yeah, that that's it really. And I think as well, you know, this isn't like me preaching and saying everyone must work like this. This is just me offering one slightly different narrative to the working story and at the end of the day I'm just really inspired by people that don't put themselves in boxes and you know people like Carly Kloss who's a model but she's also an entrepreneur and like even Kim Kardashian retraining as a lawyer but also an Instagram star it's like come on people we can be multiple things and your work has always had a multiplicity at its core you know when you were at Glamour you had your blog for as long as I've known you you've always been interested in more than one thing at the moment it's speaking and podcasting and writing books was that an ambition since you were young or is it something that sort of manifested more in your work practices and obviously in the book that you're writing as you've got older I think I always wanted to have different chapters in my life and I think to be honest it's not really a lifestyle choice anymore I think this is the reality for a lot of us is that even if we want to do a job forever and be like this is me for the next 60 years I don't think that's even possible and I'm just really I really want to you know t tell people and celebrate the idea that we can keep learning new things and changing our minds I feel like we're so obsessed with like sticking to our one identity but actually I could wake up tomorrow and want to change things up so um, I think for me, I've always, I've always wanted to tell stories, which sounds really cliche and awful. But at the end of the day, I'm interested in telling stories and trend spotting. And so doing a podcast, for example, three years ago, it was a really good time to get into that business. And now having my column in the Sunday Times, I'm like, actually, I want to I want to reach a new audience. And, you know, I'm so fascinated by ne what Netflix are doing. It's like, I just feel like the world's our oyster a bit at the moment. Everything's up for the taking curious about new media I think as someone who like you also um, dabbles in quite a lot of new media I am a speaker and a podcast and a writer like you sometimes I think people suggest that you're quite brave if you do different things whereas actually I think in this climate it's braver to just do one thing I would be scared to only be a writer because I don't know if that would be sustainable on its own do you think people think it's like riskier than it is or do you think no actually it is risky it's not for everyone think about it before you go into it well yeah I, I definitely have people saying god you're brave and that sounds really insecure and you know people's parents maybe people that are a bit older mm -hmm. look at what I do and think oh god just go and get yourself one job and stick it out and I'm thinking yeah but I could be made redundant from that one job at least if I'm made redundant from one of my eight different income streams I've got another seven like I think that's more secure and actually something I really want to get involved in and dare I say like campaign for is things like the amount of people working in this way is like a lot, like 50% of the UK now is a sort of in some way freelancing or doing something on the side. Oh, that's so interesting. By 2020, apparently, which is practically, we're practically there. Um, but yet you can't get a mortgage very easily if you don't mm -hmm. have one job. Yep, and there are too. just so many things that there are so many barriers to people who are actually on paper thriving mm -hmm. and earning really good money from multiple income streams. But on paper, it looks like, oh, sorry, can't can't sign you up for a mortgage or something. So there's lots of things like that. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Cassandra, Propercorn has become a tremendous success, and I think I'm vastly responsible for most of those sales because I eat Propercorn every single day. <laughs> when did you um, realise that you were as interested in mentorship as you were in being a businesswoman and the product itself that you were making? Mm, um, I guess... I was just so lucky to get such brilliant, generous advice um, from day one. Uh, where did you go for that advice? I feel like people listening who have got businesses might be like, but where do I turn for that? Do you know, I mean, today there are so many incredible forums and networks and events and blogs and websites. Um, I think 10 years ago, actually, there wasn't that much. And um it was a case of just asking people and asking, you know, sort of leaving no stone unturned, you know, going into a shop and asking if you could speak to the manager who then happens to know someone and just being quite ballsy and Would you cold email? Absolutely, everything. I mean, I was a door-to-door salesperson for like two years, pretty much. Um, and so you have to have that kind of approach. Um, I think, you know, listening to Emma just talking then... Uh, some of the sort of, um, you know, th- through mentorship and, and meeting this kind of, I guess, modern way of of living your lives. As um, someone who employs people, you know, a team of 50, I think a mental barrier that people may have is that this sort of traditional CV check of five years at X company, three years at B company, isn't what employers are looking for now. And actually, if I interview people who have dabbled in lots of different things, given it a go, taken risk, um, really been very motivated and, um, you know, in control of their own career. That is a huge turn on um, as an employer. And so I think, I don't know if that's sort of helpful for people listening who maybe think, oh, you know, I need to stay to the traditional career path. I think increasingly that's not what employers are looking for. That's so interesting just because I was told, I think most of us were, that on LinkedIn it looks so bad if you don't have Mm. two years, two years, two years or more on on LinkedIn. It, It was said to me, I remember so many times, don't jump around. And so I I I totally with you on that. I think if I'm if I'm looking to work with someone, I'm like, oh, what what projects have you done? Not have you stuck sat at the same desk for five years? And exactly, and and what did you learn from them? And were they successful? And how have they developed you and your and your skills? And how and that makes you really attractive um, versus you know I guess the the more traditional view of you know sticking to that sort of same kind of career path or trajectory that you're meant to go down. Um, Do grades matter? Do you ever look at A-levels or GCSEs? Well, interestingly, we've started... um, So initially, we sort of said, oh, you know, there was that box to fill in your kind of academic results, and we've taken that box off applications. For degrees as well? For degrees as well, just because... um, I think, A, we want to make sure that we are a truly representative Mm. company, both in terms of ethnicity, but also socioeconomic background Mm. as well. And so I think sometimes if you remove those boxes, people feel... Remove barriers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so... um, I'm really trying to consciously veer away from the from some of those traditional um, hoops that people are meant to jump through. And as you're obviously interested in um, getting a diversity of talent and fostering young ambition, where the importance of mentorship, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Is it that it's important to offset the ambition and the scope of your company with the reality that many women will not have the business success that you have had, and so it's important to help pull others up? I think it's, well, 
in the first instance, it's just listening to people and giving them an opportunity to often people know what the right steps are to take but they just need that little bit of encouragement um, and sort of confidence boost and so I kind of see the the role of mentorship is to just give that encouragement and that confidence. Um, I also think it's really important that women in particular are exposed to women who have succeeded in some way and so that you create more of those types of role models um, within society. And so, um, you know, on, on International Women's Day, um, pledged to mentor 70% women this year. And so I want to really make sure that um, I'm being as proactive as I can be offering that visibility and access um, to young female entrepreneurs well, not even young actually that I completely take that back just female entrepreneurs in particular how does it fit in practically into your schedule how much time do you set aside per month for mentorship it's like with anything I think you um, you just set aside the time in advance and then you just work with it you know it's, it's like the, the more um, the more your pay goes up the more money you spend the more time you have, the busier you are. You know, it just it's just one of those, you just have to set aside the time in advance and just stick to it. And so I, I think I commit to a couple of hours every fortnight. Okay, so for someone looking to mentor, you would say, you know, every two weeks or once a month is good to check in with your mentee? It completely depends on the individual. So it might just be that one check-in is enough, or it may be that um, we meet two or three times during the year, or um, actually, I'm not the best person to help, but I know someone who can. And so it's it's just having that approach of leaving no stone unturned, following every lead. Um, and that always leads to something that you get out of it. Absolutely. Liz, what's the biggest lesson you've learned as an entrepreneur yourself with Slip Pivot and from helping other entrepreneurs? I think work out what you're good at is one of the key things is because when you know what you're good at you enjoy what you're doing and then you're good at it so it's kind of self-perpetuating yeah, exactly um and so kind of go for the path of least resistance so if you're starting a business and you you know start experimenting with something you see something's working do more of that and stop doing the bits that aren't working you know it's the same with your career if you know that you're really good at a certain a certain thing like public speaking for example you're not very good at this that or the other you know just just focus on the bits that you're you're good at and build around what is working and I think that has worked for me but it's also the first thing that I do with any of my clients is to go okay let's have a good old review about where your you get your energy where your strengths are where you're getting the most positive feedback what is working let's look at the data and then just you know, grow that part of yourself and your business. As a coach, how brutally honest are you? Would there ever be a time where you would say you're flogging a dead horse? Well, when I first started coaching, which was four years ago, I had to, you know, work on my honesty because at first you kind of want to be really encouraging, really encouraging, want to make people feel really good. But actually, you know, I'm not there to be their best mate. I'm there to really help them kind of push out of their comfort zone and tackle those really difficult conversations. And those things sometimes um, they probably know. Um, you want to have that, get that that um, openness out there. Ideally, I have them see that for themselves by reviewing it and and, re and really finding the helping them to find the evidence to make that decision themselves. Um, but now, you know, I've, I've worked with quite a few people. I, I am quite honest when I really do see something and they need that feedback. I'm, I'm happy to give that. 
And how do you advise people to cut through a saturated world? You know, there are more startups than there have ever been mm-hmm. before. And there's, for the most part, going to be some someone else doing, if not what you're doing, but something very similar. Do you advise that people do lots of market research so they know exactly where they sit? Or do you say, don't do too much in case it puts you off? What's your sort of strategy on um, that saturated marketplace? I think, I mean, it depends on the business, but I do believe that there is market for everyone out there. And um, on whether you're a product or a service, it's about really working out where you want to take that company. Who is your ideal customer? Who are the people that you would love to work with? You know, who do you want to sell your product to or who do you want to work with directly? And who is going to love you? Um, and who has the ability to pay you for it because you kind of have to have all of those three three things um, where you like them, they like you and they can afford to pay Um, and then really, really, really understanding that consumer and what needs they have and how you can give them what they want because it's about giving customers what they think they want, not necessarily what they need. So really working on that messaging so that you're delivering what they want in in, in a way that is unique to you, Built again, building on those strengths. I think brand is important, um, and brand can really set you aside from another, another business. How important is it to have a USP? I think that's exactly what I mean about being different. I think it is important to really understand what you do differently to all your competitors and um, really believe in it as well. Because if you don't believe in it and you can't have an argument about it in the pub with your friend, how are you going to convince customers? Um, And if you have a true USP that really, really supports your customer um, or your client if you're a freelancer, you know, and then you are truly amazing at delivering that so that they you know they see oh I think I want that and then they get it and they really believe that they've been served they will then tell their friends so you will drive word of mouth you will get recommendations you will get reviews you'll get all the things that you need to put more people in the top of your you know sales funnel um, so USP is is really crucial but understanding what it is is the tricky bit, you know, and, and, and narrowing it down to say, this is what I believe in, this is what we deliver, and then telling people that. In a sentence. In a sentence. <laughs> Emma, what changes have you seen since publishing the multi-hyphen method, and what changes still lie ahead of us? What fires you up? Wow, that's a, that's a hard question, but an interesting one. I have seen from the reaction to the book that this is definitely a mainstream conversation. I thought I was just going to do a niche little book that like a few people would buy and I would find some friends and we'd all talk about being being multi-hyphenates together. Um, but, But this really did hit a nerve, I think, and not just millennials, but lots of other age groups like the over 55s demographic of people who have worked their whole lives really hard maybe they work in the city or they've had their own business or they've 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 worked I don't know in in an office and they are thinking oh I might be retiring soon if I'm lucky Um, maybe I could do a side hustle and so I think this is just a really exciting time where the research matched up with my book I didn't necessarily plan for that to happen there was a massive study that came out from the Henley Business School all about how upskilling, side hustling, and essentially designing your own career are the things that people should be doing now. Um, so that was a coincidence, but I just think this this conversation is only going to grow, and 
I didn't make the data myself. Like, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing that so many big companies are crumbling at the moment, but it's kind of what we're living through. So I think we just need to have more honest conversations about how to move through it. And what would you still like to see change? I would love to see people pay freelancers on time because that is Mm -hmm. something that is... I think totally unacceptable and it is so common and people think it's and just that's fine. what contributes to the instability it's yes. not necessarily the job itself that's in unstable it's the um, scaffolding or the structures around it yeah. that are quite out of date maybe totally which which on the surface makes it look like a lack of respect as well because if you're chasing a payment that is like two months late that just makes me feel like oh you didn't value that work but you definitely needed it and it definitely delivered something and it definitely was successful for you but you think it's okay not to pay um I feel very lucky I have like a team around me now where I have people that can help me get paid and I have an accountant who can you know be really scary but if you are a sole freelancer and you feel very alone I just want to make I want to do something to make people feel better and and actually really clamp down on that because I just think it's not fair. Absolutely. And I think there's quite a lot of campaigning happening for paying freelancers. Yeah. And I mean, if if the statistics are true that we are moving towards this this time where like most people will be gigging in some capacity, that absolutely needs to be fixed like ASAP. If you were to give one piece of advice to a woman considering a portfolio career or just a freelance career, what would it be? So it would be to make sure that you have your own database of your clients and customers and contacts. That could be a Google Doc. It could be a newsletter. It could be, you know, saving something in a handwritten book. But like whatever it is, don't rely on your Facebook page or Instagram page or your Twitter page because you don't own that data. Like you, I don't know if there's a way. I think Facebook have stopped now you being able to download your fans and followers. But essentially, just make sure that you have a place where you keep all that information because we just don't know. Instagram could shut down tomorrow. And I've heard so many stories, and the New York Times covered this recently, of influencers whose whole businesses, business models were based around Instagram followers. And one girl, um, she wrote this, um, this case study around this influencer who got on a plane and when she'd landed in the country where she was supposed to do this bit, this work based on her Instagram feed, her Instagram had been hacked and bots had like taken over and deleted everything. And so her business didn't exist overnight. So um, I think it's really, really important not to be scaremongered, obviously, and use social media, but just make sure that at the end of the day, you capture the data yourself. And it's not perhaps your sole business output because it's uh, they're quite insecure places for everything to exist yeah which I I guess kind of um is the whole message of the multi-hyphen method is you don't have to just have one source of income so yeah and then that protects you a bit from the bots that might eat your whole Instagram that's cheery (laughs) what about you Cassandra what do you wish you'd known five years ago that you would pass on now something I'm still trying to teach myself actually is just to give um a shit a little bit less Um, I think that you can waste so much energy and time worrying about these little things, about what people think, um, about the little misdemeanors that may have happened in the day, and it is just wasted energy. And so actually my mum gave me some brilliant advice a couple of years ago, and I was sort of moaning to her about something or other. 
And she said, you know, I, I don't know who you think you are, but people are not going home at night and worrying about you or that thing that you sort of feel like happened. Um, <laughs> you know, they've got mortgages to, play, to pay and, um, you know, things to do in their lives. And so they're really not wasting their time thinking about it. So um, that was a sobering and helpful bit of advice from my mum. For sure. That reminds me of something a writer told me recently. She said her mum was um, talking about how analytical women are, age are, much more than the baby boomer generation, self-analytical. And she said, you're like a plant expecting itself to grow when you keep pulling up your... Um, pulling up your roots to look at how they're growing. She was like, you know, if you keep, <laughs> I love if you keep that. pulling yourself up that. to look at how you're doing, you're not actually. Mm-hmm. She said it much just better. Keep than looking that. up. Well, just <laughs> keep, keep looking, looking up, not looking, yeah, yeah, not looking exactly. down. Yeah, that reminds me of that um, statistic ages ago that was like uh, that said that people refresh their own social media pages more than they look at other people's. <laughs> and amazing. I was just thinking, we're just looking at ourselves the whole time. We're not bothered about anyone I think, else. I think there's definitely a lot of. Um, Sometimes I just scroll through my own my own Instagram. I think lots of people do that. They find themselves deep into 2012 with their own Instagram. Yeah, dangerous, dangerous. It's all there for you to to mine. You all juggle um, several tentacles to your business. How do you keep a healthy work-life balance? Liz, let's start with you. Um, I've got two kids, so I have to really um, time batch my week um, and you know, when I'm with the kids, I'm with the kids because, they have, you know, they're too hectic to uh, to work at the same time. So I have to um, really have my boundaries about when I'm working and when I'm not working. Um, I love swimming. Um, I like to swim underwater with my eyes closed. And that really, I can't have my phone in the swimming pool. Um, I can't have the kids in the swimming pool. So um, uh, really just taking that time to have a bit of downtime. Um, and if I can't squeeze too much in, just getting some fresh air and making sure that I see daylight often um, really uh, helps me keep grounded. How do you feel about screens in the evening or screens at bedtime? Because I, when I worked, I worked for um, a big mobile phone company where um, it was my job to be on my phone all the time and addicted to my Blackberry. Um, And so I've kind of a little bit of allergic of touching my phone in the evenings um, because it really did, it really did kind of knock me sideways. due to overuse and uh, so now I really try not to look at it when I'm in bed put it on airplane mode I do use it as my um, alarm clock Um, I recently actually got my other half to buy me a watch for my birthday so that I didn't have to look at my phone for the time um, around the house in the day Um, just a tip to kind of Mm. keep Mm. away from it a little bit and sometimes I like put it in the other room and try and stay away from my phone yeah good idea having it in another room what about you Cassandra I mean, again, still trying to master it, but um, I mean, I am, you know, I'm a Londoner, born in London, um, absolutely fall in love with the city every day. And, you know, previously I'd go, I don't know, to a friend's house in the countryside and by sort of Sunday morning, I'm like itching for pollution and the M25. And weirdly, (laughs) that has changed in the past couple of years where I think day to day, um, especially, you know, running a business by the end of the day my head just feels full and if you put anything else in it it will just fall out and so I'm finding myself needing at the weekends to just get out of the city even for a couple of days and just um, physically see less I think you know you're having to process so much every day we don't even really I think there's some ridiculous stats that in a day we now process 
what you used to process in sort of two months, um, just physically seeing so many buildings and cars and people and adverts. And so just getting away from the city and seeing green or some sort of expanse of something for um, 24 hours, 48 hours, um, oddly, is now how I find my refuge. Um, I also think there's a real responsibility for employers to um, offer more richness um, in the workplace. So, you know, if people are giving lots of time um, to work, how do you make sure that uh, in that time they're also getting learning and development, that they in some way are able to sort of feel like they're giving back? So we have um, time that the team can spend on charity initiatives, um, just really making sure that you are offering as rich and as broad an experience as possible. I think there's a real onus on employers to do that more. If you had a young member of your team that you found out was staying in the office till 9pm every night, would you say, no, this is too much, you need to go home earlier? Yeah, absolutely. It it is something that we really consciously look out for um, and we will put... It's it's our responsibility to make sure that the team is big enough to handle The the workload in like a reasonable amount of time um, and you know even lunchtime every single day everyone is encouraged to sort of step away from their desk and eat lunch together um, and the best conversations always happen over food and relationships are formed over food and so it's so important that yeah I think that you set that culture um, in the workplace. On a previous um, episode of this podcast, we had uh, the author of 52 Things to Do on Your Lunch Break. Oh, I love that Which was, and she said, you know, you don't have to take an hour. A lunch break can be 20 minutes. But how important it was just to go outside and sit on a bench and eat a sandwich and then come back in. And move. I think we don't move enough. We're all so sedentary. And I think that's another thing my mum's constantly... Um, trying to drill into me is just you know to to move more I think it's so important for creative thinking and just for general health and actually as a freelancer I'm now at the peril of that much more Mm -hmm. because I don't have a commute so uh, some days I won't leave my house Mm -hmm. and I do wonder what my step count is looking like (laughs) that day like a hangover day where you're like to the fridge to the sofa (laughs) probably does look a bit like that (laughs) how about you Emma how have you kind of experimented with your um, work-life balance where are you at with that now well it's interesting that you said that about the you know taking time for yourself in order to actually be better at your job I interviewed the chief science officer of Headspace recently and she was saying that there's no excuse not to take a lunch break there's no excuse not to meditate for 10 minutes or do something for yourself because actually you then gain more energy in the afternoon you get you can actually get more work done if you're obsessed with work then actually not doing those things like you're going to get more out of it so yeah that's really interesting um actually I was going to say something that I learned from you to do with work-life balance is I'm such a fan of an out of office and I know that you know classically you'll put them on when you're going on a holiday and like annual leave but I started doing it just for you know it's a Wednesday today I'm 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 in a meeting or it's Thursday I'm actually I'm writing my book today and I, and I will just manage that expectation on my out of office and just and just spell that spell it out that I don't owe anyone an immediate reply and I don't know if it's just like a psychological thing where I know the out of office is on so I know that I'm like off the hook maybe but it's I love it. I think that's definitely part of it is being off the hook. And as you say, there is this odd onus of email where if you don't reply in 24 hours, you get a chaser. And I think the oddest thing about email is it's not tailored to you. So 95% of the emails I receive are nothing to do with my job. And 
they are of no professional interest or economic value for me to reply to them. Yes. And yet they all demand answers. Yes, so I having think an out-of-office is a, like a, a workflow thing and perhaps a reminder of that the, the distance because the distance is closed yeah there's this idea you can just email anyone anything very informally and I find that very confronting totally and I feel like because we we've both interviewed the the um tech expert uh Tom Chatfield who mm. writes a lot about this and he said to me once and I had it like you know etched in my brain ever since that a t- uh, emails are a to-do list written by someone else yes yeah, so and true. so I always think no what do I need to get done today in order for my business to grow and actually emails, you know, we can't ignore them, obviously, forever, unfortunately. But some emails are some other people. have 10,000 unread emails, don't they? That makes yeah, exactly. me feel so anxious. Yeah, so it's, me too. <laughs> Same. Me too. Handle that. Everyone I used yeah. to work with at the Sunday Times had, if they'd been there for five years, they had like 70,000 unread emails. Whereas oh, I, I used to oh do God. inbox zero. I can't do that yeah. now. Also, the other life hack you don't always have to reply. Yeah. You know, if someone's. If As someone, a people pleaser, though, I still I feel very. Bad about that. I make a folder called "Might Reply Later," <laughs> and I just put. And, and I'm not being mean. These are like people, like really asking big, big favors that they know. I'm. They know probably is just. There's like also not a lot happen. of um, free consulting dressed up as absolutely. I love your opinion for five minutes. I'm not talking about people who are like students or interns or people yeah. that want advice or even like that stuff. I genuinely want to help with. It's more. Can I pick your brain? And I'm a huge corporation. It's like, hmm, might reply to that one later. <laughs> yes, here's my payment structure. <laughs> um, I want to hear something that you've all learned from each other today. Liz, what have you learned? I've learned that from Cassandra to um, when you've got a problem that you need to solve, um, to look to other solutions. So the cement mixer and the popcorn mixing is, is a, a genius way of solving her flavour mixing problem. And I think that when people have a business challenge or they're trying to work out their next move is look to other sources of inspiration than where you classically think you should look. It's a really inspiring idea that it shows that you have creative blue sky thinking. What have you learnt? Um, God, I've learnt loads. Um, I think definitely around this idea of how um, especially as an employer, how do I um, ensure that in the future um, we're a company that can support multi-hyphenates and um, you know the, the, the modern way of working and, and part-time of, working? Yeah, exactly. And, and how are we set up to sort of support that way of working and that lifestyle? Um, I think the most important thing I've learned is to. Uh, put my out of office on which I've never done <laughs> ever and I'm some you know I, I guess I've got this sort of anxiety that it's um uh shirking responsibility in some way and so I'm gonna put my out of office on good great you put it I on know someone that puts her out of office on when she like just pops to the bathroom I mean I know that's too wow. far but it's like but that shows like a workaholic like I'm away for five minutes um but yeah if you ever feel stressed out put it on even just for yourself yeah it's a great tip Emma, what about you? Um, I've learned actually something that Liz said on the panel we did. Someone asked in the audience, um, how do you price yourself or how do you Ooh, yeah, that was like, a great answer. ask mm-hmm. for a pay rise or how do you know what fees to charge if you're freelance? I think that's a huge talking point. And you said, and I'm sorry if I'm paraphrasing this wrong, that you shouldn't 
price yourself personally like it's not a personal thing you should price the work Mm -hmm. and work out how much the actual work is worth Mm -hmm. and uh, that's just something that I think um, is really interesting and important because you are priceless it's the job that's (laughs) worth some money yeah Yeah. I think that's a very nice note to end on you are priceless thank you very much for listening there are two other in focus podcasts to download now about self-care and leadership brought to you by the Marriott Hotels